Hey friends, this is your host, Jeffrey Wu, on the Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast, HVMN. Excited to speak with you all today, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Dr. Lant Mansour, our research lead at HVMN. Yeah, nice to see you again. Uh, Jeff, haven't seen you in a whole week, so what have you been up to? I've actually been a little bit off the grid. I was in the backcountry of Arizona, rucking around. Uh, learning survival skills, bushcraft. Um, so if you want to bug out and figure out how to survive in the wilderness for a few days, I can maybe eke you out for 24, 48 hours. Uh, and any longer, I'll probably need to you know, do some more research and, 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 and endurance exercise myself. But it was good to unplug for a little bit. And I know it's been a big week for you moving around in san francisco how have you been i'm good uh i've been doing my own survival urban style you know moving from one place to another one little studio to another little studio um also marks um the one year anniversary of me being with hvmn and me moving here to san francisco united states um august last year so i think it it marks a really great beginning of the second year so looking forward to it 100 percent. it's i felt like i've known you forever I've uh, done a lot of incredible work on the research program with HVMN. So really uh, a pleasure to see you operate, see you grow, see you step up as a leader in the area of ketosis. So excited to see what the next year brings for the two of us and for HVMN, as well as the community of keto and fasting and, and all things uh, metabolism. I just know that Last week, I believe, we had a big Netflix special drop, yep. a docuseries called Unwell. You might have seen me talk about fasting, and you might have seen me do a lot of pull-ups and muscle-ups. I know that Lat made some cameos as well as a few other team members on the team. Yep. So it's continued to snowball and uh, gain interest and momentum. So excited to be in an interest area that so many people are excited about. What... Latin, what I wanted to talk about for this episode of the podcast is taking a step back and really thinking about the state of the art of ketone esters. Obviously, ketosis, exogenous ketones, ketone esters are an important part of what we talk about, but we haven't really had a big, massive state of the art conversation. We've talked about specific research papers, specific use cases, and it's about time we step back and say, hey, the, probably the last time we talked about ketone esters as a state of the art was probably a year or two ago. The science and the momentum and the practice and the protocols and use of ketone esters and exogenous have evolved a lot since even a year ago. Let's talk and have an overview today. So for this episode of the Atrium Podcast, we're doing a 2020 August snapshot on the state of the art of exogenous ketones, especially ketone esters. Before we dive specifically into ketone esters, I think it's always worthwhile to make sure that we have the terms and definitions dialed in. So one important thing is to define ketosis as a distinct and separate concept from ketogenesis and talk about exogenous ketosis versus endogenous ketosis. So can you help define what ketosis is and what ketogenesis is? So by definition, ketosis is when your body ketone levels um, is 0.5 millimolar and above. 
So that's in the state of ketosis where you have achieved that level of ketone bodies in your in your blood. Um, and then if you look, if you're talking about endogenous and exogenous ketones, now that 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 vast difference there is whether you are taking in a form of ketones, um, be it ketone ester, diester, ketone salts, or whatnot. So exogenous coming in from externally versus endogenous in ketones, meaning you're producing the ketones internally. And that's usually being achieved via um, either intermittent fasting or a ketogenic diet. Um, those two are the generally more common, you, more common way to create um, ketotic state where you elevate your own ketone levels via liver, um, via ketogenesis in the liver. And that increases that ketone body levels in the blood. Yeah, 100%. And before the entrance of exogenous ketones, ketogenesis and ketosis, or those two concepts are always conflated. Meaning that because there is no such thing as exogenous ketones as a technology, as a food, but essentially being in ketosis essentially assumes that you're producing your own endogenous ketones through ketogenesis. And now as this technology of exogenous ketones have come into the market over the last 10, 15, 20 years from a research perspective, and then as ketone salts over the last five years or so, and then as ketone esters in the last couple of years, now we can really bifurcate and be specific about ketosis, ketogenesis, exogenous, endogenous. So that's absolutely right. And I think that that 0.5 millimole threshold is, I would say, fairly arbitrary. I mean, just some kind of definition that someone defines 0.5. I think the more interesting question to me is, what is a threshold where you see the metabolic benefit or the signaling benefit of ketone bodies? That's a much more precise way to define ketosis. And maybe that's actually something that I think is emerging at the state of the art. What is that threshold of ketone bodies that need to be present in the blood to see either metabolic substrate benefit, meaning that this is a fuel that the mitochondria are actively oxidizing, or is there a signaling threshold where at 0.3 millimole BHB, you don't really see a much of a, uh, a histone signaling effect or a, a, you know, FOXO3 signaling effect or some of the downstream pathways relating to uh, mTOR, AMPK, the energy sensing mechanisms. What is that threshold from 0 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.5, 1.0 that really you see a step function in that signaling effect? But but the problem I have though is if we define it by that's a very interesting definition by the way, Jeff. Um, and I agree that we we need to determine that, identify that, and further sort of do research on on what is the threshold and how much it affects our bodies. But the problem I have with going through that approach is that if what if that threshold varies between cases you know certain therapeutic metabolic changes will need a higher um, uh, level of ketone uh, bodies whereas um, other type of conditions may require just a very low ketone levels so then that means we are having different definitions of ketosis so i think that's why they, they came up with a standardized 0.5 millimolar ketone yeah, I think that's a fair. I don't think we're disagreeing. No, I'm no, just no, saying that I don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing. I'm saying that 0.5 is not a very precise definition. No, it's either. not. I agree. It's fairly arbitrary, right? It's like you need to be in ketosis for neurological conditions versus athletic performance. 0.5 is very, very different for 
cardiovascular benefit, for neurological benefit, from sport benefit, right? Like even that 0.5 threshold is, I, I think, as you would agree with me, is completely wrong in terms of sport benefit. It's going to be yeah. too low yeah. for, yeah. for you know, the applications. So to me, it's more, we need to get more precise. Mm-hmm. And science is all about finding more and more precision. Mm-hmm. And if I were to start making hypothesis generation, there will be more precision on levels of BHB that implicate certain kind of metabolic benefit or states, as you're suggesting. And I think that will be personalized to your genetics, to your use cases, 100%. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, activating longevity pathways for me might be 07 and for you might be 1.1. And I think that is the future of medicine in general. There will be personalized uh, impact for all these metabolic markers or biomarkers. Again, like you can think about it from a glucose perspective. Maybe some people do better and are actually not diabetic at 105 uh, milligrams per deciliter glucose. But the general rule of thumb is over 100 is considered pre-diabetic in, in a fasted state. That's right. So I think even then, these are like, like just to step back and, and, and talk about medicine as a whole, medicine is really done on a population scale. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that population scale is oftentimes not the same ethnicity, race, uh, gender, social class, economic class, as me, Jeffrey Wu, or you, Dr. Lat Mansour, or, you know, our listener, who, uh, at, at the end of the day, that's, that's the model, that's experiment you care about. Like, I don't care what Michael Jordan uh, needs for his optimal performance. I care about what I need to be for my optimal performance. And that is, I think, the future. We're all getting there through quantified self, biohacking, getting our metrics so we can fine-tune ourselves. So I think the same thing is going to happen with this notion of ketosis. It will be personalized to our specific genetics and as well as our applications. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, the inter-individual and intra-individual variability definitely plays a very big role in metabolism. And in my area of research in metabolism and physiology, we have seen even you know from animals to human models that metabolism varies quite largely between you know um, different states you know different genetics and also different environmental factors different people in different countries different weathers uh, would behave differently so personalized medicine is definitely um, the future that I'm looking forward to Um, as you said like I care more about how certain um, nutrition and certain supplements would affect me personally uh, versus you know, it affects the whole population. Of course, we are interested in that too, in terms of understanding the mechanisms of actions. But ultimately, how do I make sure that I um, get the most benefit out of a certain supplement? 100%. So now that we've defined ketosis, and I would say a much more precise, and I would say just more innovative way, um, let's talk about exogenous ketones and just get a snapshot here of the interesting use cases, hypotheses, and ideas that we've come across in the last couple of years that is at the bleeding, bleeding edge of what's known. I think given our position as part of the HVMN community, we're working with the very best athletes. We're working with the very best academics. We're working with the very best folks in the military across the board, and we just get to collect and understand all the different ways people are using, experimenting, and getting data. So I think we have a very unique vantage point that's 
different from just an academic lens, different from just a brand lens. I think we get this and different from just a sports physiologist or a sports nutrition coach lens and different from just the athlete's lens. I think we get to see and call it all of that, which puts us at a pretty unique vantage point in terms of what works at the professional level and what is shown in academia and what has been maybe potentially working at the top level of sport and performance, but not yet necessarily shown in academic studies. And then I think it, just from the anecdotal side of house with the community, I think there's also so much interesting little anecdotes or nuggets of information that might imply generate hypotheses for how one can use ketones or research ketone esters in the future. So we'll explore all of that and we'll caveat what is the evidence level for said observation, whether that's anecdotal, whether that's been backed by RNRCT, or that's something that just we're hypothesizing and speculating on. So this will be a fun one, a little bit off the wall, and hope we spark some insight into how we can continue to explore and experiment here. Yeah. Where do we want to start? I would say that let's just start from a performance perspective. Okay. Ergogenic effect for acute Exer, uh, you know, acute pre-exercise use cases. How would you summarize there? I know we talked a little bit, of, we've talked a bunch about this. What is the most concise way you would summarize? And I'll give you, we can maybe riff on it and, and I'll give you my specific definition. Sure, sure. Um, okay. Well, I think I've got to start, let's start with Cox's paper in 2016, as far as the agrogenic um, effect goes. So when the you know, Cox's group published the paper, they saw an increase of 2% enhancement in performance uh, after pre-fatiguing the athletes. They went through time trial and they saw that 2% 2 improvement by giving them glucose and um, ketone esters before the exercise and topped up during the exercise. Um, later on, then, there are a couple of other studies that showed no difference um, but the protocol that they used were a bit different to Cox's paper because Cox's paper had uh, fasted participants, whereas these other studies have got their participants have a normal meal before exercise, and they saw no difference there. So, so there's conflicting results so far as far as ergogenic pre-exercise keto uh, ketone ester supplementation goes. So that's that's as far as we know. Um, I think people are still. Uh, trying to figure out the best protocol and only a month ago and we talked about this as well on the podcast the most recent paper from Haspel's group which added bicarbonate um, and ketone ester in a fed state actually saw a five percent uh, increase in performance in the time trial after pre-fatigue um, sessions so that's the the latest latest protocol that we know is adding glucose ketone ester and bicarbonate to offset the ketoacidosis caused by ketone ester um, and, and neutralizing that pH drop to improve and optimize the mechanism of actions of enzymes, proteins, um, and metabolism in general to make sure that your body is in the optimal state. Yep. So I think that last part encapsulates my current August 2020 recommendation of how to use ketones uh, acutely before exercise. Stack ketones with carbs and bicarbonate. And it sounds like 
through the different protocols, you can tease out acidosis versus fasted versus fed. And in the general application use case, if you're trying to win your marathon, win your Ironman, you know, go kick down doors and, 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 and if you're a warrior, uh, do bicarbonate, ketones, glucose, and then likely top off ketones during the middle to have an added boost of having ketones in the system. If you start to, uh, detracting and taking away either glucose or bicarbonate, it's not you know negative, right? We're not saying like decrements of performance, but you're just not getting the full benefit of having all of the synergies across the different supplements one can be stacking together. So I imagine, and I know that we've been in contact with Professor Hesville, the Katie LeVon group, which I know is doing just great work out there. Uh, and I know they just have so many different like experiments as well as unpublished data that is just going to be coming out. So we'll be following that very, very closely to keep everyone up to speed on the very, very latest protocols to optimize uses of ketone esters and ketones as part of this podcast. So stay tuned as we update what is known in research. Now, moving on to recovery, I think recovery is going to be known as the dominant use cases of exogenous ketones moving forward. I think the data is and the mechanisms are so much more clear and the effect sizes are so much bigger on the recovery side of house. Uh, again, another Peter Hesbel, K. Levon study showed that in an overtraining, overreaching protocol of two to three workouts a day for over three weeks, uh, ketone ester group was at the end was doing 15% more work volume compared to control, which is a massive difference in terms of work output. Um, and the mechanisms would make a lot of sense to me in terms of stacking ketones with protein, with carbohydrates, actually in increasing mTOR activation. So you're seeing uh, quicker protein resynthesis and quicker glycogen repletion. I think those are interesting and very reasonable mechanisms. Uh, and, and it makes sense from a lot of the observations I've seen from now moving a little bit to what I've seen when people are using it for weight cutting, the anti-catabolic effect of ketones, which again, makes sense from an evolutionary perspective where when you are fasting, that's when ketones are up. And when your ketones are up, you want to be protecting and sparing your protein and your muscle. So that seems like a very tight, cohesive story from a mechanistic perspective, as well as an evolutionary argument of why introducing ketones from a recovery perspective is so beneficial. Do you have any other color or added? You want to add anything to the recovery side? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to. I want to really bring forth um, some nuance between these studies that you just mentioned as well. Um, yes, they have seen that ketone esters taken for recovery did increase glycogen synthesis by up to fifty percent. Um, and yes, they did see that taking ketone ester as recovery for three weeks increased performance in the long run, as well as you know really activating mTOR um, downstream targets. However, they have been contradicting results with regards to glycogen because um, one study showed the improved in glycogen resynthesis while another actually, while they showed the activation of mTOR, um, they did not see the, the increase in glycogen resynthesis. Now, do note that when I say there is no increase in resynthesis, does not mean that it slows down. It just means that the glycogen rate of resynthesis is the same as control, meaning that you know there's no 
you know, effect of ketone ester there. So what I hypothesize looking at the protocols, just purely by looking at the protocols of these studies, is that the study uh, Holtzworth, um, Holtzworth et al., they saw the increase in glycogen resynthesis and they gave um, glucose and ketones as post-recovery nutrition. Whereas Van Dorn and Poff, they gave the athletes protein, glucose, and ketone ester as post-recovery nutrition. So notice that the difference is the addition of protein into the mix. And my hypothesis is that adding leucine, especially leucine-containing protein, into the post-recovery mix, it actually activates leucine-mediated mTOR activation, and that overrides the increase in glycogen uh, resynthesis and, and glucose metabolism because the increase of mTOR um, does inhibit to a certain extent glucose um, metabolism. Hmm, interesting. I was thinking that you were going to go more on the delivery of glucose because Holdsworth delivered glucose through an IV, which is super physiologically high amounts of glucose. Correct. Correct. They, they use glycemic gland. Which would have been a little bit of... Uh, a cheat, right? It's like you're you're injecting glucose into your it blood yeah. <laughs> versus yeah, yeah, like yeah. how much you can consume. Um, so I, I 100% agree with you. I should have been a little bit more nuanced there, but my sense is that exactly as you're describing the mTOR activation for increasing muscle resynthesis, I think that's a dominant and, and, and most interesting effect that. Yeah, yeah, and and glycogen, you know, as as they have looked before for many years now. Um, the resynthesis after exercise takes place 12 to 24 hours after. And if given ample of carbohydrate, you shouldn't have any problem resynthesizing it. So if I have to take a note from Holtzworth's paper, you know, yes, they're using IV and, and glycemic clamp and, you know, very high amount of glucose. But if it holds true with oral glucose as well, it's like if you take high glucose, high ketone ester orally, after exercise, if that holds true uh, with the result, meaning that they do increase glycogen synthesis, I think that would be best for situations where you have very short rest period and you need to, you know, let's say you are going on an ultra marathon, you have rest period of like a few hours and then you have to keep going again. That could be good um, to be used to replenish that glycogen stores. But again, you know, nothing has been has been done in that situation um, or really proven, um, especially orally taken together, glucose and ketone ester. So that is pure speculation here. And relating to recovery is what I wanted to explore more about, which is like this application of weight cutting. Yeah. So we work with a lot of athletes who participate in sports with weight classes. And you can think powerlifting, MMA, boxing, um, there's weight classes. You got to weigh in at 205, 185, 155, 125. And oftentimes these athletes basically try to be as big as possible and right before the fight, cut as much weight as possible and then weigh in and then rehydrate, re refeed and blow back up. So oftentimes, um, as you know, as we work with fighters, they might weigh in at 155 but on fight night. They're at 170, 175. So they're literally ballooning down and gaining 20 pounds of extra weight after they weigh in, which is obscene. I mean, think about it: going and gaining 20 pounds of of, of mass in a day. Um, so 
obviously there's a lot of protocol and research on how to best do this mm -hmm. because it's like saying, hey, go starve yourself before you have like the most important fight of your life or right. your most important competition. How could you really perform at your peak? So a lot of exploration within the process of weight cutting. And I think exogenous ketones, ketone esters are a very interesting tool here because of what we learned about the mechanisms of protein sparing, anti-catabolic effects of ketones. So I don't believe there's been a lot of actual academic research in this space, but what I can say is that while working with athletes and top level coaches and athletes, they're seeing good results from using ketone esters as a way to support their weight cut. And I see it in two ways, which is, or two mechanisms that, that make sense to me, which is one, the control of ghrelin. Mm -hmm. Ketones were shown to reduce ghrelin, which is an appetite hormone. So that makes people less hungry as they're trying to lose weight. And then I think, then the second part is the anti-catabolic effect where ketones signal a sparing of muscle protein. Uh, so I think when you have one plus two together, it makes a lot of sense where if you're having a fixed calorie count, it makes sense to introduce at least some portion of those calories to be ketones to maximize strength and power and endurance to weight ratio. Anything that you would add in, in terms of adding color or nuance? No, I think, I think that's, that's a very perfect way of explaining the mechanisms as well as the current knowledge that we know based on the publications and the research that we have seen, uh, certainly ghrelin and the muscle preservation. Now, one point, one interesting point for me to point out is going back to what we're talking about, recovery, POF, POF's paper with Haspel's group, um, when they use ketone ester as recovery uh, strategy, what they have seen over three weeks is that instead of losing weight, these athletes, the the fifteen percent improvement um, seen in these athletes with ketone ester, they actually saw an increase in energy, cons increase in calorie consumption, which is also matched by increase in energy expenditure. So that to me is quite interesting because that means they, they actually ate more, but also in turn, they burn more. So, so it's interesting to dissect in terms of um, what sort of things they are actually doing that's different between this, you know, ghrelin publication, like uh, a group of people, you know, by suppressing ghrelin, you're suppressing appetite and then people using it for weight cutting and then versus um, athletes who are using it for recovery and how do they actually, you know, perceive hunger? And and they did go, they did go through, you know, a bunch of questionnaires asking like the desire to eat or like the perception of hunger. It does affect it to a certain extent, for sure. Yeah, I mean, my speculation is that at rest, the ketone esters uh, boost the ghrelin, but when you're in an overreaching overreaching situation, which is that you're working out so friggin' hard mm -hmm. that you're getting sore. I, my, my, my hypothesis is that that ketones as an anti-catabolic agent is, is making you feel less like the, like the, uh, rate of perceived exertion is lower. So you feel less crappy. So you eat more. That would be my hypothesis. Explore like basically an impact on the central nervous system, your brain. Okay. That's, that's a fair point. So interesting area to explore. Uh, which is actually a good segue to even, yeah, let's talk about the brain. From an athletic perspective, um, from a powerlifting perspective, we've, again, heard a lot of anecdotes at the very, very elite level that people feel like they can lift more 
weights, you know, Olympic powerlifting weights with ketones in her system, which doesn't necessarily have a clear mechanism from a energy system perspective, right? Because when you do a motion that is at, you know, a second long, basically, and you're sprinting that whole second, that's entirely fossil creatine system. You're, you're not even really oxidizing. <laughs> you're, you're not even using glycolysis. It's just, it's just like the instant burst of your phosphocreatine system. So it doesn't make sense from a metabolic substrate perspective why ketones would do anything. So to me, this generates a hypothesis around, again, CNS, your brain. Do you some, somehow feel better, feel more alert, feel more hyped up? Is it like you feel less tired? Um, to like be feel like you're a superhuman and just lift and, and get a PR. There's something there that, I, that, that that's happening. And that's interesting because um, in some studies where the um, athletes were undergoing endurance exercise, so opposite to what you just said, you know, the, the explosive um, resistance exercise, they actually went through endurance exercise. And the ketone ester group actually had higher um, rate of perceived exertion. So they actually found that, you know, they, they, it's harder for them to work out during that first hour or so. Um, now, the scientists, you know, they, they did um, theorize that it could be the buildup of um, acid, um, you know, the acidosis in the body. That this, this was the Hezbollah paper, right? Which was balanced out with the bicarbonate. Correct. So, so that's the interesting part. Whereas with you, uh, what you just said, you know, we would assume that ketone would upregulate. Uh, you know, if, if you take ketone for a long time or you're on a ketogenic diet, you're fat adapted, you would upregulate the fatty acid metabolism and downregulate glucose metabolism. And that may, you know, affect to some certain extent short bursts of exercises or, or whatnot. But, you know, that's the interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like very different interplays, right? Because I think when you're doing for the endurance, what you're talking about with like increased RPE, rate of preserved exertion, I think that's from the acidosis, mm-hmm. right? Which is eliminated when you add bicarbonate, which is a buffer. Yeah. But because when you're just like popping ketones right before your one second power lift, acidosis probably doesn't matter because it's like such a short <laughs> burst that the cognitive effect dominates. So I think, again, this opens up that can of worms where every context is so specific and you can, there's so many different variables to dial in for to make these incremental changes from gold medal to bronze medal to not even making it to the Olympics. So to me, there's something around the CNS that is just like not super observed yet, where that's, you know, somehow it's, we know that it impacts GABA. We know that it impacts your neurotransmitter chemistry. That is maybe the extent, I mean, I think from an application or more behavioral perspective, at least in the rat in, in animal models, we see anti-anxiolytic impact of ketones in the system. So mice are a little bit more exploratory, less scared. Uh, and I can see that, that that's been reflected in anecdotal study or reports from, I know that Rhonda Patrick was on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about that she uses it before big speeches and big talks because it makes her feel a little bit more clear and fluid. So again, that just recapitulates to me that there's something happening in the brain when one is adding ketones. And that might explain why you're seeing benefit for powerlifting as well as uh, before talks. And I guess another just more specific exploration area is that cognitive impact from the BHB itself or is it from within the ketone ester 
uh, one half of the ketone ester is butane dial, which as a form of an alcohol, it's not like drinking alcohol like ethanol, it's butane dial. That, and I just wonder, is that the CNS effect coming from the butane dial or the beta-hydroxybutyrate itself? And that, as far as I know, is an open question. Yeah, I, I, I do not have answer to that as well. Um, um, it's, you know, it would be exciting to see what comes out of that research. Yeah, and I know that you know we're collab- you know we're supporting the NIH looking at neurological conditions as well. So, um, and I think that was one of the most dominant use cases that I would say, you know, folks like Dr. Veach and Dr. Mary Newport were most excited about the applications of ketones for cognitive impairment, and. Again, Alzheimer's is one of the big rising diseases that's killing or, or debilitating so many of our elderly friends, community members. So not even from a performance perspective, but from a therapeutic perspective, that's a very, very exciting area. Although the mechanisms are probably very, very different. Yeah, I was going to say they're very different. Um, and it would be interesting to compare and contrast the different mechanisms between um, therapeutic, which is more chronic use, versus, as you said earlier, the acute use in performance um, to see if actually if it actually you know goes through the same pathway or same uh, met- metabolic uh, cascades that affect both conditions. So the mechanisms, to my understanding of how this is useful for neurological conditions, uh, relate to two different impacts. One is a potential dysregulation of pyruvate dehydrogenase in the brain, in neurons. PDH is required to convert glucose into pyruvate, which is then entered into the Krebs cycle of the mitochondria. It seems like in Alzheimer's brains, you see less PDH activity, and that might be caused by insulin resistance of the brain or some sort of glucose problem in the brain. The great thing about ketones, it crosses a blood-brain barrier, it doesn't require PDH to enter the mitochondria into the cell. So you have a very clean alternate fuel substrate that burns. So you're not, so you're allowing the energy of an Alzheimer's brain to remain high. So if you actually look at brain scans of an Alzheimer's patient versus a normal patient, the normal brain is just so much more activity and energy going around, which makes a lot of sense. You're, you're, you're more alert, you're more alive, you're more, you're more there. Um, and I also know that for Parkinson's or other diseases, they're looking at the implications of NADPH, which is one of the coenzymes that is a part of the Krebs cycle. And ketosis pushes the NADPH ratio in a, in a more optimal way. Um, so uh, probably a little bit too technical for the purposes of a general overview of what we're talking about here. But there's a lot of interesting discussion with all of longevity and a lot of these chronic diseases that relate to uh, the coenzymes within uh, the Krebs cycle. And I think we've heard a lot about NAD precursors and a nicotinamide riboside NR, NMN, and those are really things that cre- expand the pool of what's available of NAD, pre- uh, NAD starting materials. But I would say that Veach has always argued that it's not necessarily just how much starting substrate it is if it's just gated by the fact that you need ketosis to shift the ratios in the right amount of way, right? It's uh, if you have 10 seamstresses 
or people that are making clothes, and you, if you just keep dumping silk or thread, but you're only capped by 10 people that can actually use a thread, just by dumping thread doesn't make you have more of the end cloth. Mm -hmm. So actually changing metabolic state through ketosis seems to be a very important gating factor to unlock some of the benefit of all these NAD precursors and all that, all that good stuff. Yeah, and there is a, a study that used our ketonaster that showed uh, increase in brain network stability in young adults. Um, so they managed to um, sort of scan these adults for risk of, of cognitive impairment for later on um, when they age, and they could identify as early as like at the age of, I think, 49. And by taking ketone acid, they actually saw an increase in stability between the, the brain regions and all the networks actually communicate much better after ketone. Uh, actually, they saw um, the same benefits with both endogenous and exogenous ketones because they try ketogenic diet as well as exogenous ketone esters. Yeah, and I think what's also important in terms of brain stability is sleep. I think we're all chronically under, probably not sleeping well, whether through stress or just ambient environmental factors. But I think, again, one of the coolest anecdotal reports, and I have, again, no one has studied this formally, so it, uh, ambitious PhD students look into this. We're seeing a lot of anecdotal reports where, you know, even 5, 10 grams of ketone ester seem to increase deep sleep scores as measured by popular consumer wearable devices like Oura Rings or Whoop Straps. So I don't know. I mean, again, like why? I, I would just defer to, you know, probably something to GABA, adenosine, all those neurotransmitter systems that we know get impacted by the presence of ketones, ketosis. But specifically, why is it an anxiolytic effect where you're just a little bit less stressed out, you're a little bit more calm? Is it something that's, you know, as you're talking about brain stability, your, your, your neurons are firing a little bit more cleanly, so it just, you can sleep better. Uh, any, any other speculations or hypotheses you might have on why we're seeing improved sleep scores? I don't, actually. I don't, I mean, I mean yeah, I, I don't have any personal speculations myself. Um, I do, you know, hope that soon um, in the near future we have some neuroscientists and neurologists come and tell us like what exactly is the ketonester doing to our brain that help us sleep or if it does help us sleep um, because you know we also have seen some anecdotal examples that people after taking ketonester they get into this hyperactive state where they can't sleep so what makes them so different? You know, people who sleep better with ketonester versus people who get hyperactive after ketonester. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's a very, very fair point. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good anecdote to bring up and say like, hey, some people definitely feel like almost amped up like a caffeine from ketonesters. Any other general use cases that you find interesting? I would say that TBI prophylaxis is another interesting research area. Again, there's been good animal data suggesting that presence of ketones uh, is neuroprotective. Um, longevity is an interesting application research area. My personal hypothesis and belief is that the reason why calorie restriction works is because it's mediated through ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you can essentially mimic calorie restriction through a ketogenic diet or through zygous ketones. 
I would say the exogenous ketone part is maybe a little bit impacted by what else you're consuming. I don't know if you're going to see the same benefit if you're eating a lot of sugar on top of ketogenic or and ketones at the same time. That might be great for performance, but maybe not so good for longevity. But my main point is that ketones themselves, whether expressed endogenously or through exogenous product, should dominate or be the majority uh, mechanism that derives longevity benefits from calorie restriction. At least that's my hypothesis. Um, anything you want to add in terms of those two areas of applications? No, I think that's that's a very fair point. Um, what I would love to see, though, is that the difference in endogenous and exogenous ketones in mediating that calorie restriction. Do you know what I mean? Like We know that taking ketone as that does... Uh, inhibit ghrelin or does have effects on ghrelin. Now, ketogenic diet, on the other hand, what people have seen is that because people consume more fat and that itself make you feel more full. So that may or may not directly be associated with ghrelin per se or ketones and ghrelin. So I want to see the discrepancies between those two you know, endogenous and exogenous ketones in mediating that appetite suppression or mediating that calorie restriction. I think those areas for me, just out of my curiosity as a scientist, as, as a, you know, uh, a person interested in biohacking would be very thrilled to look into. Cool. Yeah. I would say that maybe we now pivot towards combinations or stacks. I think with the emergence of Hezbollah's bicarbonate introduction, like that to mm-hmm. me is almost the gold standard of how you use ketones. You've yep. got to, you got to buffer out potential downside of adding metabolic acidosis when you're having a huge bolus of ketones all, all at once. Especially in the fat state. Yeah, exactly. So what else is interesting in terms of combining? Well, I've heard of people using ketones as a part of a plant medicine ceremony. And I think that's kind of interesting from an anecdotal perspective because with a lot of plant medicine ceremonies, they often have people fast or purge before they do these very intense ceremonies of, of plant medicine, right? Um, so I wonder, was that purging to... To, to, to like make sure you don't throw up and vomit um, in terms of just making sure you're, you're fasting, which is probably the dominant reason why they have people fast and, and purge before they do these ceremonies. But I wonder if that understudied or under thought about mechanism is that you're having ketones in your system and ketones plus plant medicine has a boosted impact for how the medicine affects them. So I've heard that uh, people feel like as they're doing multiple day ceremonies, they get tired and lethargic and they'll pop ketone ester and they'll just like feel like it just like re-sparked their brain up. So this might be more on the recreational side of stacking uh, different different compounds. You know, we're not recommending anything that's not, or we're not recommending anything that's illegal here. This is just mainly anecdotal passing along of information. But that seems to be interesting, at least from an anecdotal perspective of how, the brain can be perceiving energy or when you start combining multiple substances that are neuroactive, which 
is risky to say the very least, but potentially interesting to research to see if there's synergies. Would you say though, is it the synergistic effect or, I mean, I don't know much about, you know, plant ceremonies, but if the, what you're saying is that they would, you know, throw up or they would be lethargic, wouldn't taking ketones, which is a form of calories, would then make them feel better just because there is an input of calories. So, so meaning to say like, you know, playing the devil's advocate. So would having a 120 calories of, of glucose or fat um, work the same? Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, I think you got a calorie match. Is it just the presence of calories or is there something special with ketones themselves? Yeah. That I, I don't have that much to speculate other than we do know that ketones act on the brain in a pretty unique way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like exactly why uh, we need to do more research here. So I think that's a good, again, like, I think it's like, this is why it's a fun to have these conversations. Like here's some crazy hypothesis. Here's why that crazy hypothesis could be BS. And uh, let's run the experiment to see who is right. Um, what else is interesting in terms of stacking? Uh, speaking a little bit about TBIs, I know that there's been research around omega-3s and specific forms or derivatives of omega-3s, like specialized pro-resolving mediators, SPMs, which have been shown to have some impact on TBIs. So I wonder if there's combinations of things like SPMs, lactate, ketones, all together as some sort of combination, synergistic TBI prophylactics elixir when people are going out into uh, events or sports or activities that have high risks of concussions. That could be very, very interesting. And uh, I know that some people are already using that for combat sports, maybe not to the extent of having lactate SPMs and ketones all together. But if I were to give my best free advice, you know, you get what you pay for. I would recommend exploring with some of these substrates that have been shown to be neuroprotective and combining to see if they are synergistic. Yeah. Um, another thing that is somewhat related to that is hyperbaric oxygen chambers. I know that uh, having high oxygen is also, you know, people use it for neurological conditions. And I know that there's been some community members who've been using ketone esters, stacking it with hyperbaric oxygen therapy and feeling you know, feeling lit basically when you're doing those two together, um, which kind of makes sense, right? Because you're having high ketones and having high oxygen and you're just oxidizing like the super efficient fuel really, really quickly. Um, so I, no one's that's actually studied this formally as far as I can tell, but that could be an interesting protocol before a competition, ramp up ketones and then just sit in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which is like hyper compressed oxygen for a couple hours and see if you're just again, on, on, on fire. Go on an overdrive. Yeah. So I think any, anything else that is interesting to at least highlight in, in this overview here? No, I think we've covered most of the things that we, we think um, would be interesting. You know, we covered performances, we covered, um, you know, the brain, both therapeutic and cognitive performance. We covered um, other usages that may not be, published per se, uh, but more of anecdotal um, different stacks that people use just from our customers talking to us. We haven't covered, we haven't covered cardiovascular. Um, do you want to highlight a little bit of the overview there in terms of how ketones might impact cardiovascular uh, uh, health and outcomes? Sure, sure. 
I mean, right now we know for uh, for a fact that there are a couple of research groups that are currently researching using ketone ester in um, cardiovascular disease, in heart failure especially, um, because what they hypothesize is that ketones may provide a more efficient um, energy source compared to the other substrates in the face of heart failure. Um, and this was sort of recapitulated by um, Sato in the 95 paper where they, they showed that ketones actually is more efficient per you know, unit oxygen um, versus glucose. And you know if this is true, then when you go through myocardial infarction or ischemia, you have lack of... AKA heart attack. Yeah, heart attack. Um, you, you'll have lack of um, substrates going into your capillaries, going to your, your, your heart. You've got lack of oxygen going to, so you're going through hypoxia. If ketone ester one helps with hypoxia, which has been seen in animals... Um, that could also increase the hypoxic adaptation of the heart. And secondly, if it's true that ketones is more energy efficient and, and um, delivering the optimized energy source while the heart is lacking um, glucose or fat going into the heart, it could provide a, a, another avenue in which the heart can still metabolize, create ATP and continue pumping. A lot of cases, heart failure heart failure occurs after a heart attack is because even though the patient survived the heart attack, the tissues, uh, parts of the tissues of the heart have been damaged because of the lack of, you know, um, oxygen, because of the lack of substrates and they can't, the heart, part of the heart cannot provide that energy and the cells just, you know, die and, and that damage is done. And because of that, further on down the road, it increases the risk of um, the heart not working properly, and then you get arrhythmias, which is irregular heartbeats and and different, you know, dysregulation of um, heart rate, and that would eventually lead towards um, heart failure, where the heart just fails altogether. So, providing a form of substrates that may mitigate that damage by giving the heart, you know, that energy it needs, could potentially decrease the risk of developing heart failure. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good deep dive into an area that you're an expert in. So that's, or like at least a cursory dive. And I know we could probably have a full entire podcast just talking about cardiovascular, which we might want to do if there's interest from, from our listeners here. And maybe the last point that I'll leave it up to is, again, back to one of the first things we talked about, which is what is the level of threshold of ketones necessary to even have any of these impact areas? Because we're seeing great results from a ketogenic diet. So do you need exogenous ketones if you just have a ketogenic diet, maybe do some intermittent fasting. Maybe you don't need the super expensive ketone ester. You can have our MCT or our keto collagen or some of our other products are just going to be coming around the corner that boost your ketones mildly because you don't need 3.0. You don't need 5.0 millimole ketones because you're not trying to win the Tour de France. You just need to get from 0.5 to 1.0. And if those thresholds for some of these metabolic impacts for these cases are that mild, which is hard. there's emerging evidence that you don't need that much ketones for a lot of things we're describing, right? It seems like the threshold for some of the metabolic impact, especially for cardiovascular, right? I think some of the, the research we've seen, you only need about 1.0 millimole. Is that correct? To see the, these these impacts. I think it's still, yeah, it is It is still unclear, but you certainly don't need, yeah, you don't need three for sure, but it is unclear as to, you know, whether you need, is it one, is it 0.1, 0.5, is it 1.5? It's still unclear at the moment. Um, 
but certainly you know if we're looking at say for example i'm just giving an example here uh, for diabetes you certainly don't need all the way you know up to three to see uh, glycemic um, decrease uh, glycemic control um, in diabetic patients or in obese patients so that to me is what i'd like to encourage this community to research in the future i'm calling academics sports physiologists professors hobbyists to really narrow down the actual thresholds because we don't necessarily need to just be ketone chasing we don't necessarily need to just be like eating supplements and whatnot we didn't actually need to know the threshold of ketones necessary for the role and impact and application that you're looking for and cross that by your own personal genetics and your own personal use cases so that is going to be the most impactful area of metabolic metabolic or ketosis research i see in the next couple of years really understanding the thresholds required to see the benefit so then you actually know when is it appropriate to have food or high fat diet or intermittent fasting to get to what you want and when it's appropriate to have you know more potent exogenous ketones going from mcts to ketone salts to ketone esters to, hey, let's infuse ourselves. Maybe like I want to have eight millimole ketones all the time. And I just like have a, a ketone bag in, you know, into my carotid arteries <laughs> pumping me ketones, you know, 24-7, right? Maybe that'll be a fun biohacking experiment. Me walking around with an IV bag with, a ket- with ketones infused. Um, that would be fun. So we'll leave it at that. I think we've definitely surveyed the landscape where I think are some of the most interesting, most exciting, most under understood aspects of ketosis. And hopefully this asks more questions or opens up more questions than answers. I think that's part of why we wanted to do this, which is that I would say within the very, very early innings of fully understanding ketosis and metabolism in general. Again, I would say that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, ketosis was thought of as, as a metabolic dysfunctional state. And now that's being rehabilitated. I think you're going to see now moving forward that might be a metabolic advantage state that we actually want to be spending more time in. And it's cool that literally within my short lifetime, I've seen that change. I mean, just even in my time in this area of science, I've seen that change going from six years ago where ketosis, when you Google it, the first result is ketoacidosis to now hey, ketogenic diet is like the most popular diet that people are searching all the time. So that's just even in my time being an active uh, researcher, contributor, thinker of this space. So I can only imagine six more years down the line where we'll be at. And I'm sure you're seeing the same thing in in your trajectory, in your career as well. Yeah, um, definitely. I think um, what a lot of people don't um, realize is how fast this area um, is growing because even though research, yes, research can be slow sometimes, you know, it takes years to, to find a molecule, it takes years to, to create something um, that works in certain therapeutic areas. But once the interest of a certain, you know, compound or certain area grows, um, the speed at which it goes, it just goes exponentially. And, and more people, you know, more different groups around the world um, start using this molecule or start using this, this method or this diet to achieve something it just all worked together and, and suddenly there's an explosion in the space and we see all sort of um, knowledge being acquired and 
a lot of like discoveries being like open up to public and i think that's that's the beauty of science and a beauty of, of our job as you know uh being being people who are more in touch in in the current research in the area and, and sharing it with the public and sharing it with everyone else yeah great so we'll wrap it up here and as always ask either let or i questions anytime uh this is like the main reason why we do this is we have so much knowledge that we want to be sharing and it's it's honestly fun for both Latin and I. So thanks for staying and and coming to the end of this episode. I know it went from pretty light to pretty technical and bouncing back and forth between like super nitty-gritty metabolism to pretty interesting applications and pretty speculative combinations of plant medicine plus ketones. So this is a fun one. I hope that we'll do another state-of-the-art update in 2021 and we'll have much more and hopefully answer some of the questions that we've brought up today. So as always, thank you for taking the time. Follow me at HVMN or at Jeffrey Wu across all social platforms. And until then, talk to you guys all very soon. Thank you very much, everyone. See you guys soon.